Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in product-focused teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company or want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.vc. If you want to work at a Notation portfolio company, check out jobs.notation.vc. This episode is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB's services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form all three Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Lisa Edgar is a managing director and member of the investment committee at Top Tier Capital Partners. She focuses on manager selection, due diligence, and investment monitoring of Top Tier's primary investments. Lisa is particularly interested in helping up-and-coming microfunds. Previous to Top Tier, Lisa was part of the asset management team at W.R. Hambrecht, and before that, she spent 10 years at Horsley Bridge Partners. Lisa, thank you so much for doing this. We've talked about it for years, I think, so glad glad to finally um, have you on Origins. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background to start. Sure. So I actually was born and raised in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I'm a, I consider myself more a Midwesterner than an East Coaster, if you think about mm. Pittsburgh versus Philadelphia. And I lived there, um, you know, while I was growing up through school. I went to community college there. Then I took off and I lived a couple of years in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, because I was in the hotel restaurant business. Really? And then I moved, yeah, I moved to the Bay Area in kind of the mid 80s. And I had been there really ever since then until just this last year when I relocated to London, which we will talk about later on. Right. What were you doing in the restaurant business? You know, it is funny. Um, You know, I didn't really have know what I wanted to do, you know, when I got out of school. And I had worked at a number of restaurants and I understood that the restaurant industry was actually a business. So I went to community college and have a associate degree in hotel restaurant management. And um, during that time, though, and this is kind of interesting when I think of the seeds that get planted, my grandmother used to live very close to the, to the college that I was going to. And I would often stop over there and visit with her. And she would listen to these kind of radio talk shows, these that were investors and investments and, mm. and things. And I found it fascinating. She found it fascinating. And we'd sit and listen to them and then talk about them afterwards. And I understand now that that was really what planted the seed for me to be an investor. My father worked at the local um, ABC affiliate. He worked at a television station. My mom was an executive assistant for a number of companies. Uh, She retired working for a Carnegie Mellon University professor. 
um, that had his own business on the side. But um, that really planted the seed for me in investing. But I did spend a, a few years in the hotel restaurant business um, as well. What were you doing when you initially moved out to the Bay Area? Did you work for like a tech company or or is that when you stumbled upon a career in investing? So at that point, I was living in Hilton Head, South Carolina, still working at a hotel. And I realized that it just wasn't the challenge I was looking for. I had taken off from Pittsburgh in a 1974 Nova with you know, a box of clothes, a box of books, actually a guitar, right. which right. I still try to fiddle around with a little bit. And I did that, you know, I worked in that industry for a while and I realized that I, you know, I wanted something else and that investing kept coming back to me. So when I got to the Bay Area, I still was in the, in the restaurant business and hotel business, but I wanted to move over. And what I did was move into more a um, office role inside a hotel, working for the general manager of a hotel in Berkeley. And then I said, I want to go and work for one of those investment banks that are in San Francisco. And those that remember H&Q, Montgomery Securities, Robbie Stevens, that's where I wanted to work. And I wanted to be a sales assistant there. And I wanted to have this career in investment. And um, where I landed, interestingly enough, was at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco working for 23 PhD economists. Wow. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. A little strange path. In what, like late 80s? Um, 90s? Yes, this was kind of yeah. the mid, mid, late 80s, yeah. How did you get that gig? It was really kind of some of the work I was doing at the hotel, which, which stopped being more operations. We had opened up a restaurant in that hotel in, in Berkeley, and I was working for the food and beverage manager and doing things like that. But it was less kind of operations and more kind of office and, and administration and those things. So I took that skill set moved it into the Federal Reserve Bank. And then, you know, some is luck, a lot of it's hard work, and a lot of it's really having somebody that's going to believe in you. And I worked for somebody at the Federal Reserve Bank that thought, you know, you could do more than what you're doing here. Hmm. Why don't you summarize these speeches for the bank president, which at that time was Bob Perry, And why don't you try to do this analytical work on a PC? You know, they're doing a lot of work on mainframes, but why don't you try to do this this work on a a PC? And I just kind of dug in and did it and kind of moved my way around that organization in that way. So I actually moved from working in the economic research department. We were doing stuff on the Beige Book and things like that. Then into the supervision, regulation, and credit group, oddly enough, where we were building a database using SQL, you know, the Mm. if-then statements, Mm. (laughs) and just trying to to create the structure of the various bank holding companies and the various banks in the district in which San Francisco Fed was. So really kind of a strange thing because I don't tell people often that I actually learned a little bit of programming, but I did during that time. So that was kind of an interesting... This may may seem like an odd question, but were there any other women at the Federal Reserve during that time? Actually, you know, it's interesting. Even in the economic research group, there were 23 PhDs and there were, there were two or three women. I know that's okay. not a lot, um, but there were. And then in the supervision, regulation, and credit group, there were women there too. And I remember one of my dear friends there that I got to know was another woman who was really into the programming. 
Hmm. I mean, she actually, I would say, was a programmer and helped me really get better because that was not my forte at all, right? So, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't notice that there wasn't. I was not the only woman. Okay. Yeah. You ended up going to business school. I did. I think at UCLA, right? No, at Cal. I was at Cal. Oh, you went yeah. to business school at Cal. Yeah. How did you end up in the fund-to-funds investment management business? Because that was right after business school? No. Um, or there was some other twists and turns? Yeah, the there's always all kinds of okay. twists and turns. I know. I mean, my story, I love listening to other stories because they seem so straightforward and mine just seems so, um, you know, opportunistic and just trying to see what else I was interested sure. in and what, you know, what opportunities kind of came my way. But I was actually um, working for the Federal Reserve at that point, right? And I was doing some now I'm in the supervision, regulation, and credit department, building databases. And so understanding that, re-engineering the corporation, understanding data, understanding some of that. And lo and behold, Horsley Bridge was moving from Rochester, New York, looking to hire people in the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of the roles they were looking for was to help them with their data and reporting, et cetera, mm-hmm. because that was one firm, one fund of funds that still to this day um, has a big belief in data. Now, of course, now everybody does, but they were very sure. early on in that. And if you think about what I was doing at the Fed, it kind of worked nicely into what they were looking for. So, you know, there were five fund of funds probably in the whole world at that point, maybe a couple more, but not many. And now there's hundreds of fund of funds. So this is way at the beginning of that type of business. How big was Horsey Bridge at the time? I mean, Horsey Bridge obviously now is a extremely well-known yeah. fund of funds globally. How big was the firm at that time? This is maybe Gosh, the 90s? Yeah, 10, 15 people. Okay, so it's still really I don't know, small. But it, was, yeah. it was fun too, and it was a $300 million oh, wow. fund okay. or something. I mean, literally, they had just moved to um, the Bay Area from Rochester, okay. New York. And, and, and then to answer your question, which I didn't, and, and I understand that now, I actually went back and got my MBA while working full-time at Horsley Bridge. Oh, okay. Um, Cal has a, has a program. It's an evening MBA program, and I did that. And so okay. I, I worked full-time and did that. And I wouldn't say it was easy. We had a number yeah. of different people from all kinds of walks of life. Pretty much everybody was working, but we, got, we had a great experience and a lot of really met a lot of interesting people in group projects. And you know, now I actually do some work for Cal kind of full circle. I'm back in that mm. fold. Mm. you know, at this point. Yeah. What was the experience at Horsley Bridge like? I mean, this was the early days. I assume they still, I mean, they were on fun too, so they probably still had a lot to prove. Yeah. I'm curious what, not just the experience at Horsley Bridge was like, but also were they only investing in, in venture funds at the time and, and kind of like your initial introduction into the private markets more broadly? Yeah, well, of course, you know, like a lot of people, we didn't, I didn't know much at all about venture capital. I'm not sure even, I mean, I don't think I knew what it was, right? Right. It wasn't a big industry. It was still a cottage industry. I think if you talk to the GPs, I think this was the time where VCs still just sat in their office and the phone rang Mm -hmm. and, you know, a deal came their way. I mean, it, it was just really nascent, very much a cottage industry. And, um, like I said, there weren't that many fund of funds. You know, and Horsley, they invested in funds, you know, and they still don't have a, a big practice in kind of secondaries and co-investments. I mean, it was really straight up funds. They moved because 
most of the activity was in Silicon Valley. Right. And they, just, they understood they needed to be closer to where the action was and to build the relationships and such. But it was it was early days. And then um, we went through, there was still a lot of biotech and we went through kind of a biotech boom and bust there and then, you know, built up the program and built up the, the investments and activity. And, you know, in the late 90s, it was crazy before the dot Bus. I mean, right. anything with a literally dot com. I mean, I always tell this story. I remember sitting in the office of the of Polycom, the executives there, specifically the CFO, and the stock wasn't doing very well. And I remember looking at him. You should. I said, you should just change this thing to Poly dot com, and you could probably you know, <laughs> have a lot more market cap. Oh my God! <laughs> laughed and stuff. But um, that was that being in San Francisco in the heart of that activity during that buildup was was really nutty. When you were getting in a taxi at that point, you know, no Uber lifts or anything, and people would be talking about buying those stocks and talking about right. you know, everything that had gone public. There were just hundreds of companies that were going public. You know, very little revenues, unlike today. It was just a crazy time. Yeah. Yeah. At some point along the way, you must have really fallen in love with private market and fund investing yeah. as, as, and I guess you had always kind of thought about being an investor broadly. At what point did you either decide or kind of fall in love with this specific form of investing? Was that at Horsley Bridge or maybe, maybe later? No, it was definitely at Horsley Bridge. I mean, okay. the things we were investing in were so interesting. All the brand new technologies, all the brand new um, life science, you know, um, pharmaceutical products that were being developed. It was a, it was a, you learn so much. You were with such smart people. I mean, it's very similar to the way the business is today. And then you see the products that these companies are funding, start making them what, their way into kind of day-to-day life and, you know, the use cases of businesses. And then we'd go down to Silicon Valley and we'd meet with the companies because one of the roles I had there was to actually help manage the public stock distributions once the VCs mm. distribute the stocks to the LPs. You know, I did that. So we acted kind of as buy-side analysts and we'd go down and visit the companies and decide when we get the stock, should we hold or sell? Of course, we're not buying, right? Because we're only getting, you know, the distributions. Right. You would just drive down, you know, Sand Hill Road or even Route 128 in Boston, and you'd see all these companies that were in the portfolio and that you've been hearing about, and you see their products. And I mean, it was just really exciting. And I fell in love with it, you know, and I still love it. Yeah. And I imagine over the course, you were at Horsey Bridge for what, 10, 10 years? 10 years, yeah. yeah. I imagine the firm grew pretty dramatically during that period or not, or still kind of small by the well, time you it, left. It was still small, but we had raised additional funds. We They had um, started going into Europe, you know, started thinking about other geographies, built the team, you know, so we were growing as the success you know, allowed, allowed Horsley to grow. And also as just the whole industry, you know, was getting bigger. Right. So tell me about this decision, I guess, to leave and ultimately join top tier. And I guess, tell us a little bit about top tier, because that's obviously where you're still a partner 
today? Yes. So there was a stop along the way. So you have to put okay. yourself back in time for those of you that were around. And this was kind of in the middle of the dot-com exuberance. And everything was going so well. You know, all the companies were up and to the right. Things were going public. New, new entities were being created. And Bill Hambrecht, who was one of the founders of Hambrecht and Quist, started a new investment bank called W.R. Hambrecht. Okay. And this was south of market. You know, we were getting options. It was a true startup by all measures, you know, mm -hmm. versus Horsley. But by that time, it was pretty institutional. This was a startup. I mean, we were, you know, where the office was, just how we were interacting. It was very different. And it just seemed like such a great opportunity. And what they were doing, which was a little bit different, is this is now a, an investment bank. So now right. I'm one of the strange people that go from the buy side to the sell side. Mm. Of course, that didn't last long. I went back to the buy side. But at, at that point, they were using a Dutch auction process to raise capital, to raise equity. Mm. And it for was companies. very unique for companies, mm. very unique. For private companies? For private companies, that would be wow. how they were taken public. Interesting. So it was wow. a, it was a way to go public through a Dutch auction process, mm. and I just found it fascinating. I, you know, at the, at the Fed, I was in the economic research group. I have an undergraduate degree in economics, so I, I always I just found it so um, intriguing what they were doing. And I thought, and there was a, a friend who had actually been at Horsley Bridge who left to join W.R. Hambrecht. who said, "You got to come. This is so exciting. Mm. What we're doing, what we're building here." And you know, I said, "I'm there. I'm there." So I was there for a few years and then the whole dot-com bust happened and I had been talking to the folks at Paul Capital, which is the predecessor of Top Tier. Okay. And so Phil Paul and, and David York, who's still my, my partner and colleague, we had been talking about what they were building inside Paul Capital. Paul Capital was a firm that was created as a specialist secondary firm. Okay, right. And they had a healthcare royalty product and funds. And then they had this venture fund of funds activity. So I went to join them to help build that venture capital fund of funds activity. Mm -hmm. So it started by buying secondaries in companies or secondaries in funds or both? In, in funds. In funds. Okay. Yeah. Paul Capital was one of the original secondary players in the industry, LP positions primarily. Got it. And that's, and that's just to clarify for folks like that, that's when an LP has an existing position, they've maybe done most of their capital calls or some portion of their capital calls already and want to sell their position in the fund to another LP. So they would go buy those basically secondary positions. So you joined to build out their, I guess, primary fund to fund investing. Why? What, what was the interest? What was their interest in, in kind of building out that new business? So Phil Paul had been in the industry for quite a while and knew, you know, how profitable and successful of a business you could, you could grow in that area. I think he would always say the world didn't need another venture capital fund of funds, but if you were doing something differentiated and you were providing value for a group of investors you know, then you could really build something that was desirable. So it originally got started from a, a large investor that came to 
Phil Paul and Paul Capital and said, hey, listen, this is our top tier list of names and we can't get in these names anymore. So can you help us? So that was how the original program got created inside Paul Capital. Mm -hmm. And it's actually how we got our name. So in 2011, the, the venture fund of funds group that was inside Paul Capital spun out and we okay. rebranded as top tier. And that's what we're known as today. Right. So was that the strategy? Like, was that your primary strategy early on? Was just get into, I guess, the top tier of funds? And I'm curious how your strategy has evolved as you've built out the, the program. And I guess over the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Originally it was. There was really an access that we had based on the relationships that we had that we could provide to institutional investors that did not have those same relationships. And we could build a portfolio of, of funds. That was really the initial strategy in the original cell of what we were doing. Um, that has really changed over time to be more about adding a diversified portfolio of both established funds as well as emerging funds to add in some J uh, mitigation, J-curve mitigation strategies like secondaries and co-investments, and then to become more global as venture has become more global. How have your personal views on kind of early stage venture and picking managers and the things that you look for? Well, what does that look like maybe today? And how has that evolved as your own career and has evolved and as you've kind of seen different cycles evolve? Yeah. I'm curious maybe if there's things that you look for and really care about as you're working with or picking managers today that maybe you didn't once upon a time or, or vice versa. Yeah, I always tell people it's a pattern recognition business. So right. It's hard to put anything in context if you have an N of one. But the more and more managers you meet or companies that you see, entrepreneurs, I think that's where you develop really your, your gut feel for what, what works and what doesn't. And it's based on seeing a lot of different projects, companies, funds. I think originally you would spend most of your time more on the quantitative side, you know, right. going back, looking to what have you done in the past? What are the returns in the past? What does that look like? And that would be for the more, that would be for the more established firms, yeah. like understanding what their IRR and TVPI and DPI and all those things look like over, over time as they raise funds eight or nine. Something right. Like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where you start because that's, that's kind of quantitative and pretty easy to, to see. But of course, that's not the whole story because investing in a fund is what we call blind pool investing. And right. that, as you know, you know, we commit to a fund and then the portfolio is built. It's very different than buying something like in the secondary market or doing you know, analysis on a company and looking at all the metrics. So I think, you know, just spending a lot more time on team, on culture, on strategy, and strategy contains all kinds of things, portfolio construction, you know, um, sector, um, style, you know, number of companies, and, and then how people think about exits. And and I think one of the most important things today, and I, you know, I mentioned it first, is really how you're building your own 
firm and how you're building that culture, what you stand for. I think those have become more and more important mm. as the industry has matured. Yeah. Um, so you started in with top tier in the, in the Bay area, obviously, uh, you've been building out the program for, I guess, almost 10 years now, right. At top tier. And you recently moved to London. I'm curious to hear about that decision and the decision to build top tier is I'm curious, like, is this the first time you're making investments outside the U S and how maybe it compares to your experience at Horsley Bridge when they started to build out their international practice um, and maybe similarities or, or differences as you, as you begin to think about it. Yeah, when when Horsley started going international, by that time I was I was pretty much gone and, and, and moved on to WR Hambrick. So I, I'm not sure I can really sure. talk a lot about that. But I think for for us at Top Tier, we always had some international exposure. Okay. Almost from the beginning. And most of that was maybe a fund that had had a presence in Europe and the US. And a lot of those were more healthcare related. And so we had that almost from the beginning. And then like a lot of institutional LPs, we started building out investment activity in China. So we had a number of investments in uh, VC funds in China. And, and that was actually a really good, we worked with a number of managers that were already relationships in the U.S. that then maybe created an entity or created a team over in China and then uh, felt comfortable maybe doing some of our own commitments. Mm. But over the last couple years, we've really seen how venture has been global. I mean, technology is part of every business. It is a global business. And we felt that this is what we do for a living. So we want to really expand our footprint in a more international way and with more local presence, because we, we really think that you have to be local. And as we thought about it, and this was just maybe a couple of years ago, it made more sense for us in our team and where just the world was economically and what was happening, you know, US and China and Europe, that we thought the best opportunity for us was in Europe. We saw lower valuations. We saw entrepreneurs building global businesses. We saw amazing exits. We saw funds that were producing the returns that we really we desired, 5X funds, 7X funds, that, those kind of things. And we thought that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the business that we have in the U.S., which is to invest in funds, to do secondaries, both LP secondaries now and direct secondaries. Yep. as well as co-investments. So now we actually operate all around, you know, the cap table of venture and we'll take that and, and replicate that in Europe. And that's, that's what we did. So in 2019, we opened an office here. The original intent was to have some of my colleagues and I come for a while and, and be here and then maybe have some people rotating through a little bit, build a team and and that we are definitely still doing. We have a venture partner here. We just we just actually made an offer to hire somebody else, you know, full time here. Nice. 
But when I personally got here, I thought this is such a great challenge and such a great opportunity to help really plant the flag and build the network and create a presence that it was something that I just was really kind of got really passionate about and, and said, you know what, I'll, I'll stay here and I'll be here for a while and really help to show that we're committed to this geography and that, you know, there'd be some continuity to, to a senior member being here. And, and that's kind of why I'm here. And, and other than, other than the lockdown. I imagine just personally, it's probably a, a fun adventure after being in uh, the Bay Area for so long. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I still have friends and family there. And I, I in, in normal times, I would go there. But it, it is. It's, I had never worked abroad before. I mean, so many people have had that experience. I never had. And it's very energizing. And, and of course, yeah. you know, not a bad place, right? <laughs> yeah. So you're based in London. I assume you're spending time throughout Europe, or I guess mostly mostly Western Europe, but I assume you're looking at geographies beyond just London, but other tech hubs there. Is that right? Yes, for sure. Um, when you look at Europe, it, it is much more diversified as far as where some of the hubs are. And, and of course, there are London, Berlin, you know, Stockholm, Paris. I think those are the ones that would naturally come to mind. But there are so many other places where things are happening, whether it be Barcelona, whether it be Amsterdam, you know, in, in um, places in, in Norway and Finland. It's just amazing. And even in your Eastern Europe, right? I mean, a lot of great innovation, a lot of teams. And even as these companies might move to the U.S. or do something else, often they keep those innovation teams intact, you know, in these European cities. And it's great. There's a, there's a wage arbitrage and um, there's a lot more, less sense of movement, you know, than what we get in the Bay Area for sure. Now, all of that might have changed <laughs> after COVID. Right. What types of, in terms of building out the strategy sort of from scratch, although I guess you have some pre-existing relationships there, where do you start? You, do you start with the same strategy that you started with like 10 years ago at top tier in terms of starting with the kind of trying to get into the top few funds in, in Europe? Or is it kind of a broader mandate and strategy to start? And, and I, I guess what I'm saying is like, what, what types of funds are you most interested or looking at in, um, as you build out the practice? It's a broader mandate for sure. But, and it will contain both though. You know, just like in the US, it will contain some of the names that you would know that are on, you know, fund seven or fund five. And it will also contain some smaller funds that you may not recognize that are more regionally focused, that are probably more seed focused, that we think have have really built a strong ecosystem around them and have demonstrated their value add and have demonstrated the unique position in the market. And we think that they can they can generate the high returns that we're looking for. So let's talk about the current environment because as we're recording this podcast, you're, uh, I see working from home, not the office, <laughs> I think, right? Yeah, this is my flat. Yeah, I'm curious what what that's meant. How long have you been in London for? So I came to London last spring, so I've been here for a year. A year. So I, I'm curious how, well, just broadly, how, how you think about you know, the current environment as it, as it relates to top tier and, and the managers that you're working with, but, but also more specifically how you're thinking about the current environment as it relates to you, 
you know, kind of building this new, new part of the business? We're absolutely still committed to building this new part of the business. I mean, if you think about it, by the time we got here, Brexit had already been defined, although we had multiple votes on that, but nothing changed, as you know. And and the base reason why we're here is we just think there's great innovation and there's entrepreneurs building global businesses and the world has just gotten so flat. And the entrepreneurs here, if you shut your eyes and, and didn't listen to some accents, maybe they, they, you could be almost anywhere, mm. especially when you're in some of the tech hubs. So we, we certainly have not changed. We certainly spent the first few weeks, just like everyone else, you know, calling all of our VC managers and then all of our investors just to have those really transparent and real conversations about where we are, what we're doing, what we think. You know, we did a big portfolio assessment of, of what was going on and did the red, yellow, green and try to figure out, you know, capital calls and, and what that would look like and then what liquidity might look like. And so, so spent the first four weeks, like everyone else, probably doing that. And, and we all laugh now, but that, that time was like molasses, right? I mean, if there was something weird about those early days. Yeah. And now, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's not even close to business as usual by any stretch of imagination, but you know, we've gotten in some pace and we, we then move towards, okay, what are the opportunities? So many of the funds that we were doing re-ups with, they continued. So we continued our diligence. We continued our process. Everything was just Zoom. We did our meetings over Zoom mm-hmm. and we got those. Those are done. I mean, mm-hmm. we've been very busy. Um, as far as investments, busier than normal. Like our, our managers, uh, you know, if there's a perception that this might last a really long time, our managers may be coming back to raise capital sooner, or not, or just you just happen to be busy. Not seeing that, I think we just happen okay. to be busy. Yeah, I mean, the LPs, yeah. you know, like like top tier have been telling folks for a long time, the calendar is just full. I mean, it's been a really robust fundraising market for for many years. Yeah. You know, for years. And, and so I think, you know, there was a lot of fatigue in just the quality, the quantity of, of what we were kind of working through. And so we just continued to work through that. I think the additional busyness might have been just much more checking in with your own team and, and just your, maybe your friends in the business, as well as those deals you were working on. So so many people say they were more, they've been more busy now than they have been for a long time. So that is true. But the, the pace of our investments that were already, I'd say, in the pipeline, you know, and on the spreadsheet kept happening. Where we're spending a lot of time, probably like a lot of others, are where might the opportunistic and the, the new uh, transactions that we didn't think of, whether that be new funds or being able to have access to a fund or maybe a secondary, like what is the secondary market going to look like? We're very active there. Mm -hmm. And right now that's a bit stalled because of pricing. So we want to just look forward and make sure that we are well positioned to take advantage of the opportunities that that will be coming in a time like this. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time more recently thinking about that and then trying to help GPs and maybe other LPs by giving them just our experiences in other downturns. 
we did a webinar a few weeks ago that we invited GPs to, and we had our partners, and then we had somebody from Cooley, and then somebody from Pacific Western Bank to just kind of, this is what's happening, and this is what's happening with banking and liquidity, and this is what's happening with legal terms. And just, I think at this point, just trying to help people mm-hmm. um, navigate, you know, and, and, and try to be communicative. And I will say right now, where we're sitting, we're trying to think about re-entry and what that looks like. So yesterday we had our team meetings and partners meetings, which we have on Monday, trying to organize what that looks like. And I'll tell you, nobody knows yet because the buildings haven't been organized. We're not organized enough to feel confident to Hmm. allow our colleagues and our visitors and others that might come into our office. We're not comfortable with that yet. So in the timeline of things, that's where we are today. Yeah. Obviously been a very busy few years within venture, particularly in the US. I I assume probably somewhat similar in, in Europe. And I hear this at least from a lot of the endowments and other folks like that, that they're just like pretty much full on managers. Or maybe they'll remove one and add one in the next year or two. Is that the same for a fund of funds like like top tier? Like given how active the last number of years have been, have you kind of, at least in the US, maybe like built your roster of managers and, and it's given how deep that is, maybe really difficult to add new names? Or are you always adding kind of a couple per year? You know, very few people have a clean sheet of paper, which would be nice if you did. Right. We always tried to add a couple new, which does mean that we're probably cutting a couple. Yeah. And that's every cycle? Every cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a pretty full portfolio. But where we do add is when we move into other areas, maybe do a separate account for a particular um, investor in a sector or in a geography or when we started our alpha manager program, which was for small funds, mm-hmm. you know, we had, had a little bit more flexibility to, to be adding at that point. And as people look to us as venture experts, I'm encouraged that we'll always have something like that, that sure. is not a full clean sheet of paper, but something where we can be more proactive and more thinking about the future. Yeah. Are you and your manager doing, doing like anything tactically, like specifically different? It sounds like maybe you're planning for the ability to, to be a little more opportunistic when, you know, if things continue to go through like a tough period the next couple quarters. Would that be like the, the main tactical thing that you guys are kind of thinking about changing in this environment? Yeah, I think so. And and we've just gotten, as our team has grown and just become so much more experienced, we've just keep, you know, raising the bar, which is fantastic. You know, not only internally the way we work, but also the way we look at things. And um, I think this, something like this gives you a pause and nobody's, you know, everybody's not running around on airplanes and doing things like that, which is distracting. And so I think there's a little bit more thinking time now, which is fantastic, yeah, especially sure. now, right? Like I said, early on, it was like, okay, we got to like really 
look at what we have and, and assess. But now I think there's a little bit more breathing room to be a little bit more, um, and maybe that's not tactical, but a little bit more strategic thinking. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, we definitely feel that these days. I feel like just just taking out commuting alone gives you another, at least for us, we're based in Brooklyn, gives you another hour or two every day back in your calendar to read, to think, to write. It's kind of, um, there's part of it that's um, that's kind of wonderful. Yeah. What do you think the long-term impact will be? Like, is this a couple quarters of disruption? Is Does this have several years of impact? Or do things just go back to normal in the next quarter or two? Like, I'm curious how you view both your own and, and within inside of top tier on, on how this kind of impacts the broader venture ecosystem longer term. Yeah. And, and I'll say this is my view. And it's not like, it's not the top tier doesn't agree, but this, this is the way I, I see it. The world. Sure. When we spun out of top tier, I mean, uh, Paul Capital to create top tier, we ended up working with this gentleman that that helped us think about how to build a resilient team and a resilient firm. Mm. And I just keep going back and thinking about that because there is a lot of resiliency that has to be built in now. And I think people are going to think differently about the future and about resiliency and what this means after this disruption for the type of businesses they're building or the type of businesses they're investing in. And some of that, and, and I don't mean to be using these buzzwords, but you know, now this is all coming to roost as far as I'm concerned, has to do with sustainability as well. Mm. So I think there's going to be a lot more focus on sustainability. And I don't know if you follow this, Nick, but, you know, here in Europe, you know, Europe is where the ESG movement really came from. And I remember we'd go back to managers on Sand Hill Road and say, okay, what about your ESG policies? And most people were like, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? That was very big here. But you know, there's those 19 sustainable development goals that have been created. And, you know, People know what they are here in Europe. And of course, there's certain funds in the U.S. That, that are built around that activity too. But a lot of it is basic. And I'm sure you and Alex are investing around things like good health and well-being, quality education, you know, affordable clean energy, sustainable cities and communities, right? And, and I do think there could be, there, you know, you, there might have been a fringe movement for some of this happening. I have a, a daughter who's in her early 20s, and this is just her world. You know, this is the mm. way she wants things to go. And so I do think this might be a turning point or an inflection point is, is maybe a better, just like, you know, we went from 16% e-commerce in 10 whatever years and then to 27% in 10 right. weeks or telehealth, right. you can say the same thing. I, I have a feeling there's there's going to be more focus on that in the future and focus on that in the role of investing. I hope you're right. Yeah. I think that would be largely positive yeah. and a good reminder of us not just investing in good financial returns, but investing in companies and businesses that are sustainable and enduring yeah. and actually have an impact. They're not mutually exclusive. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. 100%. I think that's probably a good place to end on that very positive note, given all the all the craziness that's happening in the world right now. But thank you very much, Lisa, for doing this. I'm excited that we finally got got a got a moment to do it. 
be safe and healthy over there in London and, and very excited to, to um, learn more about what you, what you build there over time. Mm-hmm. You're welcome, Nick. It's been a pleasure and I'm so glad we can finally do it. This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.